As you guys are all being seated, why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter 4. We've been in a series in First Peter. We've been in it for a very long time. Some of you are like nodding in agreement. Yes, very long, too long, hopefully not too long. You guys need a Bible? Raise your hand. We have some ushers. I would love to get you a Bible. I want to read the little segment that we are in. It's First Peter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read that to you. Just go ahead and listen, or you can follow along on the screen. Um, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll just look at what God wants to speak to us through his word here this morning. So starts like this. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you might pray. Verse 8 is really the main verse that we're going to be looking at here this morning, this whole little section. But just sandwich in between all this, I want to read the extending um, parameters around this. But verse 8 is what we're going to be focusing on. So just pay attention to this. Above all, love each other. Deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as God himself is speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Well said, Jesus, thank you for your presence in this place. God, we come this morning just no matter where we're at and the circumstances in life and the questions we bring and the pains that we are processing in the moment that we find ourselves in life. And we thank you, God, that none of this, none of this at all is foreign to you, that you're familiar with our ways, you're familiar with what we're going through. So, God, even right now, we ask that you would just give our hearts confidence and faith in you. And at the same time, Lord, that we would learn to remove our faith and our confidence in the things of this world and the things that promise much but fail to deliver. And the popular narrative that's around us, God, we pray that our faith would be steadfast upon you here this morning, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, just by way of uh, introduction or in some ways, uh, regurgitation, what we've been looking at. In this great book, we've been looking at Peter writing this letter to a community of people that are following Jesus. And their big idea is they want to be faithful to God all throughout their lives, wherever it is that they live. Now, again, that being important because where they lived was, for the most part, hostile towards them. It wasn't warm and welcoming and accepting of Christians or Christian morality or Christian ideas or ideology. It At the exact opposite end of it, it was kind of... Uh, antagonistic or pushing it out off to the margins. And so what you have are these Christians kind of facing this challenge of like, how do we live faithfully to God, knowing that God did something for us on our behalf through Jesus, and our hearts are open and welcoming and desiring to live according to that. And yet at the same time, culture is saying, you're stupid for believing that. Why would you follow this ridiculous mindset of a dead Jew who's in Jerusalem, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you love an enemy? That doesn't make any sense at all. You should kill an enemy. Why would you have any sense of compassion or kindness or goodness in your heart? You know that vengeance is what gets you collateral in life. Why would you live this way? And these Christians are facing constant antagonism from the culture around them. 
And they're trying to be faithful. So again, just like any Christian throughout all ages, when you live under that level of pressure or antagonism, you're oftentimes, uh, one or two things is going to happen. You're either going to just give into the culture around you and say, whatever cultural values are kind of gaining currency in the moment, that's what I will adopt and I will live according to that idea or concept or whatever's, you know, to put it in modern day context, whatever's famous on TikTok, that will be what defines my morality. But the fact of the matter is, what was what is currently in vogue on TikTok today was not in vogue on TikTok five years ago. You want to know why? Because it's constantly shifting, which means five years from now, what's in vogue on TikTok today by way of morality will be different. It will consistently and constantly be prone towards malleability. It will be shaping and reshaping over and over and over again. And to live with your heart anchored in the cultural moment is to, look, at the end of the day, it is a process of just exhaustion. And that's where some of you find yourself, consistently exhausted, consistently winded. And yet the gospel comes around and says there's a, there's a different way to live that tethers your heart, tethers your morality, tethers your ideas, tethers your, your life into something that is eternal, that's not constantly prone towards change and mutation and shiftiness. But the fact of the matter is, is at some point we have to look at the, the, what's happening in the world and realize, so we will either become like the world around us, just like what they were being tempted to do, or we will try to run away and just kind of cast the entire world system off and just declare it all evil, and we're going to go create our own little Christian enclaves and whatnot. Um, so both of those extremes are the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Um, God loves this world. And I've, I've been struck with this more and more over the past few weeks, that when God originally created planet Earth, do you know that planet Earth was intended not just to possess a temple, somewhere in a Garden of Eden or somewhere in Jerusalem, not to just possess a temple that would be attributed to God, Yahweh God, the one who inhabits eternity, but the entire earth, the entire cosmos is the temple. Do you understand that? The entire cosmos God created was to bear forth, beam forth his glory and to be a place of sacred beauty and goodness. Everywhere you look, every square inch of all creation, God says, is mine. Problem is, we, we live on desecrated land today, right? Uh, I, I don't think anybody would argue and say, well, if this is a temple of God, it doesn't really feel like a temple, it doesn't really feel sacred. You're right. Because, thanks to yours truly and all of y'all, we have participated and contributed to the defilement and the brokenness of planet Earth. All of us are to blame. All of us have to some degree bloodied our hands in the midst of this. And yet God has not given up. God loves us. God loves this planet. God loves the cosmos. Read Romans chapter 8 in case you just need a quick little side note or footnote to remind yourself how extensive is God's love? How extensive is God's redemption? That one day all creation will bear forth the beauty of God's creation and redemption. But right now, we live in this place where it's just, you know, it's overlapped with God's new creation that's come forth through Jesus. But at the same time, it's still marred and touched and messed up with by death and brokenness and confusion and exhaustion and betrayal and sweat by the brow and blood and guts and sweat and tears and all the other stuff that goes along with life. 
And so Peter's right in this community of people saying, guys, remain faithful to Jesus. Yeah, you might live in a moment where it's tough. Yes, there may be pushback. Yes, there may be constant grit against you. Yes, it's tough. Yes, you will find persecution. Yes, you will endure and find yourself in the midst of suffering. But Jesus, because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we know the schematic. His schematic is our schematic. His map is our map. What happened to Jesus is what will happen to all of us, including the resurrection part. (laughs) And that's good news for all of us because we can look at that and be like, this is amazing. This is the story, guys, we find ourselves in if you are a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're kind of questioning, trying to figure out, make sense of it, this this is the story you're invited to synchronize your life to be a part of this story. It's, it's beautiful. Like, I, that's as simple as the Christian story is all about. But that being said, Peter wants them to understand, like, in the midst of this world, you, you have to subsist. You have to survive. You have to live, which means you have to live in a certain way. Again, if you live in a way where you just become like the culture around you, then there's going to be no distinction between you and the culture around you. Or if you live in such a way where you just abandon the culture around you, then you're not going to be of any effect really in eternal value at all. So you have to figure out a way to live so that, you can remain and contain, retain your baptismal identity. In other words, as people that have been given a new identity by Jesus. And here's what Peter's going to then do. He's going to give them a a, a basic, uh, I don't know, foundation of moral conduct. And we saw this last week in the past couple weeks, that three things that he's going to tell them. Look, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to pray, to create a space in your life where you are regularly engaging with God, praying. Look at last week's message. I kind of go into that in depth. Then he goes on to say today, which is what we're going to be focused on, is have love. And then next week we'll take a look at the subject matter of serving. What does it look like to serve? But today I just really want to think about the word love because here's what he says. Listen to it again. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Again, I mentioned this last week and it's worthwhile, I think, saying again. It's, It's surprising to me what Peter does not say. He doesn't say something like this, like, look, guys, Christians, you're all living in a culture that hates you. So load your guns and get ready to shoot people because they're antagonistic towards you. I have no problem if you want to load and that's fine. It's good. Whatever. This is not a political statement on guns. But the point that I'm making, what he's not saying, he's not saying carry out vengeance. He's not saying carry out a campaign that's going to smear their enemy. What he is saying is that I'm giving you a moral conduct. Learn how to pray, learn how to love, and learn how to serve others. That's phenomenal. Because, again, think of yourself. If you lived as a minority group in a particular cultural context, how would you conduct yourself? Especially if your minority group was under incredible oppression. I can tell you how, for the most part, Things like this are going to go. Because, again, you just got to look at the past two years, in fact, maybe even the last 20 years, of minority groups gaining political access to power. And now, as the tables have turned culturally from once being an alienated, marginalized minority group, now giving political class. How do, you, how, how, do, how do, do minority groups act? Oftentimes, with the same level of disdain and vengeance that they incurred upon themselves as a minority group. Now, because power is given to them, oftentimes that same disdain gets just spread. Guess what happens? You just create, you literally create a culture where violence and disdain 
and anger and brokenness and bitterness just keeps cycling through over and over and over again ad infinitum. And what Jesus does is he comes in and says, I'm going to break that cycle because that cycle leads to destruction and death and ruin. And the way I'm going to break this, destruct, this cycle is by inviting you into a new way of being human, which involves praying, seeking God, humbling yourself, loving others, and serving one another. So with that being said, I want to just look at four things, and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. So number one, what love is. I think it's important to start here. Like, what is love? What is love? All right. I'm going to give you just Paul the, Apostle, Paul the Apostle's definition because, again, we can spend a lot of time. We can spend, like, weeks and weeks and weeks just kind of digesting this and unpacking this, so I'm not going to do that. You're welcome. I just want to read what Paul has to say. This is a familiar passage, with mo- which most of you are probably familiar with. It's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Just listen to what he says. Love is patient. Just think about the ways in which it describes the attributes of love. Love is patient. Love does not envy. Uh, it's not green with envy. It's not constantly looking at other people and it's like, why do you have that? I don't have that. I worked hard for this. How come you got this and I didn't get this? That's not love. That's something else. Um, It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not egocentric. It's not narcissistic. In other words, you probably would not find good attributions of love on social media. Especially if an entire thing is just filled with selfies. That's probably not love. That's probably something other than love. Again, I don't have any problem with you taking selfies, so don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm just simply trying to make a statement that love is and looks like something distinct. It goes on to say love is not irritable. Uh, it's not resentful. doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Verse 13, skipped on down to that. He says, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So according to this hierarchy, Paul says, look, out of faith and hope, the greatest of all of these is love. Aspire for love. Guys, the one thing I can try as best as I can to try to convince or communicate or to say to us as a community, the most important thing is to be a community that embodies love. I would say in our culture today, love is at an all-time low. You have moral posturing. You have all forms of ways of distributing and showing forth certain uh, moral behaviors or uh, posturing oneself above another person. That's not love. It's, uh, in the same passage that we just read, Paul actually starts off by saying, look, if I give my body to be burned and yet don't have love, I'm just a banging gong. So do you know what Paul's saying? He's saying that, look, I could be the most selfless human being. I could be the most self-giving human being. People can look at you and be like, whoa, dude, you're serving. You're showing up at all these events. You're painting the walls. You're taking out the trash. You're making coffee. You're serving communion. You're helping kids and children. All of these things, by the way, are good. Please do them. We, We need helpers to be able to do those things. But you can do all of those things and do them in a manner that's self focused That's not love. Because somewhere within your heart, if that is the motivation, over a period of time, that activity will begin to morph into something of, how come I'm not being acknowledged? How come they haven't recognized me? How come no one ever paid me and I didn't get any pizza or no one ever gave me accolades or no one ever called me out and said, thank you. I'm so angry. So that loving act morphed into something other than. It really didn't. It was always that. 
but it just revealed itself over time. So love is something that Peter here says, above all things, love each other deeply. I want to point out real quickly just uh, some distortions of love. I think it's worthwhile. And again, I can spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm just going to keep it, try to succinct as I can. Uh, I think some of these distortions we can think about, just point out two big ones. Number one, uh, love does not ignore sinful actions, but ultimately humbly addresses them. And I think there's a myth within the church, especially in Christian circles, um, where it's like if somebody's doing something toxic or destructive or abusive, there have been moments within church history, even modern church history, where it's mindset of like, oh, don't say anything about pastor because what he's, he's so good at what he's doing. He's such a gifted, unique teacher. He, it doesn't matter how horrible of a human being he is or how much he mistreats his family. Don't rock the boat. Or sometimes a wife or a husband or wife could be in a relationship with each other and one of them is abusive or says things that are negative or constantly just destructive or toxic. And in the, in, in the mindset is like, I don't want to say anything negative to them because I don't want to rock the boat. And I don't want to sound like I'm a naggy human being. And I don't want to like be that negative, negative human being. So what happens is there, there's, a, there's a way of kind of uh, running away from that and, a, and denying it or just kind of ignoring it. That is not love. Love will address it. It will do, address it humbly. And if you have a hard time addressing, let's say, for example, if you're in an abusive situation, it's a spouse that you don't know how to address it or you're afraid that if you do address it, it will come back to bite you. Bring a third party in. In some cases, maybe you need to just call the cops. It's that bad. Call the cops. The point of the matter is, is that love addresses sin and brokenness. Does it in a humble way. And consequently, love, when in return, if, again, if you are in the status of being one that is stepping on other people's toes or creating a world of offense and hurt and pain or ruin or brokenness, whatever, if that's you, and again, uh, we all can be like that. I can be like that. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm been, I've been married for 31 years. I've had my fair share of stepping on my wife's toes. I got two daughters. I've had my fair share of making them cry. I'm not a proud of it, but yes, I've made them cry. I've had to, when I am confronted with my attitude, to sit down on the edge of bed, look my daughters in the eye, and say, Daddy, sorry. I was wrong. Daddy should have never talked to you that way. And I still, by the way, talk to them that way. Daddy, daddy doesn't, daddy shouldn't have done that. My daughters are 23 and 25, and I still do that. But the point of the matter is, is the ability to be able to practice repentance, those three things. Number one, acknowledge true love. If one is walking out in love, they will acknowledge the fact that they have done something wrong. Rather than getting defensive or rather than getting passive aggressive or becoming violent, they will acknowledge humbly that they did something wrong, that they offended somebody. Secondly, they will turn towards repentance. They will ask, Forgiveness. They will say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Or maybe if I did mean to do that, I don't want to be that person that does those types of things. And then thirdly, in some cases, restitution. They bring restitution. It's the whole idea of like a husband going out and buying some flowers for his wife. That's just a, a very minor form of restitution. Again, but the point of the matter is, is that as the consequence grows, there are oftentimes forms of restitution that need to play out. But all of this, all of this is in the context of love. Secondly, love is not sentimentality. Again, I think in our modern-day understanding of love, we tend to think of love purely in sentimental terms. Of like, ah, oh, I feel love towards somebody. Like, that's cool. Like, how, how does that translate over into doing what Jesus says, for example, when he says, you know, love your enemies? He cannot be saying, have 
high sentimental value towards those people that are, you know, causing pain and destruction and violence upon you. You, you can't do that. I, I can't muster sentimentality for someone that has done something horribly wrong. So love has to be something beyond sentimentality. And thank God for that. Because if love was just simply sentimentality, think about how many times, especially in a marriage, you'd be in and love, out of love, in love, out of love. And, and for the most part, we live like that because that's how we're trained by way of our culture. This is what love looks like. Love is this intense feeling. So as you fall in love, take what is there in front of you for all of its worth. But at some point, that feeling of love, that sentimentality will wane. Now you're left with just this vacuous void of pain, guilt, shame, regret. So love is not sentimentality, but it's an act of the will. So those are two things I think just important uh, to note in terms of distortions of. I want to jump on now to the next thing, which is what love costs. Because Paul, or Peter actually tells us that in this context, Paul also does it as well. But Peter in this context tells us that love actually costs something. It's actually found in the particular word where it says, love each other deeply. So some of your translations might say something different to that. As, instead of deeply. Uh, some, it might say earnestly. Some, it might say fervent. Other cases, it might be unfailing love. But what's interesting is the actual particular word that's used there um, literally means to stretch. So if any of you have been trying to get healthy or to at least get your body limber, you realize in order to touch your toes, uh, it requires some extra work. Some of you are just naturally prone. You're naturally, you know, flexible and limber and whatnot. Others of you are not. And you, you, have, you have a hard time touching your toes, right? Now, you can work on that. It will take time. It will take stretching and over and over again, repeated action and mobility to be able to get that, to increase that. But in that action, that process, that practice of doing that, even though it will feel like pain, over time of doing it over and over again, those muscles will begin to stretch, become limber, and you'll begin to accomplish the goal. That's literally the word they're saying here to describe love, love fervently. And the other element that I think that comes to mind here with regard to this is that love costs you something. In order to become limber or to stretch Think of the emotion, the, the image of stretching, reaching out to grab something. You're putting yourself in a place, a state of imbalance. You're putting your place in a, in a spot of vulnerability. But that's what love is. Love is putting yourself in that spot. I mean, when you love, you're, you're at a greater risk of being thrown off balance than any other moment in your life. When you're standing like this and you have kind of all your defenses up, you're safe. Nothing is able to penetrate. But the moment you begin to love, the moment you begin to stretch, it will cost you something. And this is exactly what he's saying. Uh, here's a couple other examples how that particular word is used. Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The word put forth is the exact word that's used here. Matthew 14, verse 31 says, Jesus stretched forth his hand and he caught Peter. It's the image when Peter's sinking. Jesus stretched forth his hand. It's, and, and I think in this moment, again, Peter's writing this book. So this, Peter was the recipient of the outstretched love, saving, rescuing love of Jesus. And now Peter's using the exact same word that he used to describe Jesus' actions. And said, hey, guys, this is what love looks like, just like Jesus stretched out. So we're called to embody this, to live this. So let's just talk a little bit about what happens when this doesn't take place. What does a community look like when everybody's closed, when everybody or is feigning, you know, acting as if they all like you? 
But the moment you leave the room, they begin to talk about you. That is a world of insecurity. That is a world where you never really know truly your place. That is a world in which it is literally the world in which we live in, but it is not the world that Jesus is crafting. That world, as described, where confusion and insecurity grows and flourishes, that world, Peter says, is coming to an end. And in its place is a world where love, true love, not fake love, not love that is just broadcasted by, guess what, I'm loving, and I just donated blah, blah, blah to blah, 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 and aren't I amazing? Look at, I'm posting the most newest fancy image on my Facebook thing or my social media account. Aren't I amazing? It's not love. It might look great. It might earn you a few, like, culture points. But at the end of the day, true love looks like stretching, reaching into another person's life, saying, I will give you my hand. I will make myself vulnerable. I will make myself susceptible to imbalance for your sake at my expense. This is a love that Peter says, guys, in the community, this is what it ultimately looks like. Again, honestly, this is what the Spirit of God is reshaping people to live like. We can say, I resist that, but the resistance is really not just towards an ideal, but towards the God who initiated this ideal. But at the end of the day, when it works out well, it's beautiful. It's a community where, yes, you're going to bump into each other. Yes, you're going to have offenses. Yes, you will find yourselves colliding from moment to moment, from period to period. And yes, you will find yourselves in moments where you will find pain and ache and hurt because of the offense of somebody else. But also built in or baked into that culture is forgiveness and healing and wholeness. All of these things that Jesus brings forth. Thirdly, what love covers. What love covers. He tells us really clearly, love covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of sins. He's probably borrowing this from uh, the book of Proverbs, where Proverbs says this, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love covers all offenses. What creates strife? Hatred, disdain. Guys, we live in a world right now that on the one hand is consistently trying to posture itself as a warrior for justice, standing up for the marginalized, standing up for the voiceless, but doing so in such a way where there's such disdain and anger and hatred and bitterness and vile towards the other. And I'm saying this is literally on all political sides. Honestly, this is my personal opinion, but if you as a Christian say, I exclusively identify on a particular political side, I'm just saying be careful about that. Like, it, to me, it's better to say, I feel like I'm in a, uh, in a homelessness state. I feel like I'm in exile. I don't really know exactly what branch I fit into. I mean, there's certain elements that might resonate here, others that might resonate here. And I'm not saying don't pick a political side and find one. I'm just simply saying, be careful where you pitch your tents and find home. Because this whole love thing, this is not compatible on either side. On either side, this whole love your enemy doesn't work. So I would suggest, as we think about this, because ultimately he says love covers a multitude of sins, but hatred stirs up strife. So as we think about even how we resonate with this and relate with this, if we find ourselves consistently in a state of just creating chaos and antagonism, that's born from heart. 
that is the exact opposite of love. It's, it's, it's part of the characteristic traits that Jesus says is part of the ancient world that is coming to an end. And something new is coming to replace it. Lastly, what love is empowered by? And this is where it gets really awesome. Here's what he says. He, I'm just going to borrow from a passage that he gave a little bit earlier. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He says, having purified your souls or having been loved, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. Love one another earnestly with a pure heart. His whole point is because you have been purified, because Jesus did something for you, acted on your behalf because he loves you, therefore, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is really important to know. Because if what you do is you walk away from this moment right here, a message like this, and you say, ah, oh, i got to try harder. I'm going to work harder, more devoted to loving other people. Look, good luck. And I'm happy that you have that good, positive attitude. That's wonderful. But what's going to happen when you fail? Because you will fail. You will immediately find yourself confronted with somebody cutting you off or doing something that's, you know, frustrating to you or galls you or angers you or incites you to frustration. There, it will. It is absolutely bound to happen, and you will fail. But again, not a failure in a sense like I'm a failure, but yet we will all fail. Then what? And what the invitation of Peter is that, look, as you have received this grace, this goodness, this kindness, this love of God that forgives you, washes you, cleanses you, live with that same posture towards others. C.S. Lewis said this well, I'm done. He says, we are mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. And in the context, he's basically saying, look, some of us are dark. And there's one reason alone, because our lives have not been shed upon by the brightness of the sun. So the question is, not try harder, not try to be more, but to position yourself, posture yourself more so, so that the love of God is shining upon you, changing you, reshaping you, transforming you, setting you free from your dungeons of despair and violence and anger and bitterness, setting you free from those cycles of violence and frustration and guilt so that you could now become somebody that is alive. And in that state of being alive, I will never tell you that love comes easy because it doesn't. Again, 31 years, marriage. It's not easy. I'm consistently having to be reminded of how oftentimes I do not measure up. My wife is 30 times better than I will ever be as a human being. But she has grace towards me when I fail I discover God's grace to wash and cleanse, and then it gives me the motivation and the fuel to be able to go back to her and say, I'm sorry, I blew it, I failed, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have spoken that tone, I shouldn't have used those lang- those words. It's not what's in my heart, and what I want to be is a man that represents who Jesus is and how God revealed himself to me. That's what I want. That's my deepest desire. My strongest desire was something entirely different in that moment. My deepest desire is I want to be like Jesus. And this is what... Peter's inviting us to take a look at. So it begins with not by a deep desire that says, I'm going to work harder, be better. No, no, that will fail. That has a limited mileage. What will transform you, what will ultimately reshape you, is putting yourself under the light of God's glory 
and allowing that light to penetrate deep into your soul and to reshape you in spite of who you are, in spite of how broken you are, knowing that you are loved and washed and forgiven and cleansed, that puts you in a different place now to say, I received this forgiveness from God. Now, now there's a, there's a little bit of a reserve that I can then share or show forth that forgiveness towards others. I think that's how Peter's inviting them to live. With that being said, I want to invite us all to stand. I'm going to pray over us, and I'm going to just pronounce a word over us as we scatter. So, Jesus, we thank you for your great love that you reshape, remake, and renew our lives. And we need you because apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. Apart from you, our hands, because they're just stained by life, And by our own sinful desires, we need grace, fresh grace. We need healing, cleansing, washing. And we thank you, Lord, that there's an eternal supply from you. So empower us now, Lord, to be the people that look like you, live like you, act like you, love like you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Hey, guys, as we uh, scatter, uh, lastly, is I want to invite you, um, and I'm going to have a opportunity we did not have the practice of generosity we kind of save that towards the end if you are a part of church uh calvary slow our church family here uh our invitation for you is to just continue to pray about what that would look like to be a part of this church community by supporting we are a crowd source church if you don't go to church here it's totally fine it's totally on you there's no you know, no obligation whatsoever. If you'd like to, that's fine. These are the ways in which you can do this. So check those out. Everything that you contribute is just something that allows us to do what we do as a church community here on the Central Coast. Um, look, may the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God. Some of you need this right now because your soul is not filled with peace. May the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God be yours. Receive it. It's a free gift. God loves you. You guys have a great week. Love you.